Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 320 of x where, if our credits page is to be believed, we're about to start a brand new era with uh, this very issue. And today we're going to be talking about, um, well, we're taking our first trip into New Look Marauders Hood here, and uh, I tell you, hmm, is Pleasant Surprise a good way to put the cart before the horse? Well, maybe, maybe. Um, I was expecting to come into this and just be like, wow, the dialogue sucks and the story sucks. And, well, I'm pleasantly surprised in that, while the dialogue is still pretty bad, uh, the story itself ain't really nothing to scoff at. It's actually pretty good. So, um, let's hop right in. This is Marauder's Annual number 1, March 2022 cover date. Stories called Hellfire and Brimstone, written by Steve Orlando, with art by Creasley. Colors, Rain Barreto, Letters, VCs, Corey Petit, Designs, Tom Muller, Edits, Amaro White-Sabolsky, cover price $5. This one went on sale January 26th of 2022. And we open with Dakin, Dakin, and our first bit of wildly unnatural dialogue while he stands in Greenwich, Connecticut. He's stood in a uh, mass grave, and uh, looks like he might be here on official X-Factor business from the sounds of it. Uh, he mentions he's here to get a proof of death which was actually one of X-Factor's purposes before Marvel canned the book. If you recall, you know, they were kind of the kind of the gatekeepers between a mutant dying and a mutant being entered into the resurrection queue. You know, they have to confirm the death so they don't have any duplicates, which, I mean, that got a little bit dicey, but that was one of the purposes before that book uh, was so unceremoniously canned. In any event, he is here because he was tipped off by a Morlock, and uh, more on that in just a little bit. But first... There's a tremor, and then an explosion of lava. Dakin, Dakin, he attempts to send out his memory flare to any telepath that he might be able to reach mentally. And uh, the names he drops here are Psylocke, Rachel, and Xavier. And it's weird that Psylocke is first here, because I'm... Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know if they ever crossed paths. But uh, I guess uh, you know she is joining the cast, so what are you going to do? Anyway, as Dakin, Dakin's skin bubbles away, he collapses and a disembodied voice demands that the theater be set up. Now, the disembodied voice suspense thing really doesn't work when the big bad is on the cover, but again, what are you gonna do? From here, it's our double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Call Me Kate, Bishop, Iceman, who supposedly left the book last issue, Psylocke, Dakin, Dakin, Tempo, Aurora without the roll eyes, Somnus, Christian Frost, who supposedly left the book last issue, Emma Frost, who is supposedly done with Hellfire Trading, and Sebastian Shaw, who is also supposedly done with Hellfire Trading. I don't know, and frankly, I'm pretty sure we're the only ones who are still trying to keep track of all of this. Now, um, I mentioned that this is the start of a new era, 
And this is the first book, as far as I can tell, that includes the line Destiny of X uh, on this on the credit page. I'm not sure if that matters, but I figured that I, I would mention it. From here we go over to Hellfire Bay, where Call Me Kate and Bishop survey the wreckage of the Marauder. They also share some unnatural-sounding dialogue, and uh, Kitty tells us that uh, Bishop is negative 15 years old at this point. Which, huh, should we, should we actually do the math on that? Okay, um, now Bishop comes back in time from 100 years in the future. you got to assume he was probably 25, 30 at that point, and he's been in the present for, uh, let's see, uh, sliding time scale, carry the two, solve for X, maybe five years now. So shouldn't he actually be like negative 60-ish years old now? Not that it matters. I, I'm sure I just put more thought and research into this than anyone cashing a paycheck to actually keep track of the stuff, but uh, maybe it's worth mentioning. I don't know. Anyway, they also talk about some of the recent changes at Hellfire Trading, and they also talk about the Marauder's mission statement. You know, that thing they were put together to do, but ignored for near the entirety of their existence while they futzed around in Madripoor and schemed behind each other's backs. Now, Call Me Kate says that they've been couriers long enough, and Bishop says that this is an oversimplification, which is putting it quite kindly. I'd say it's more of a rewriting of recent history. Or, at the very least, some very convenient lapses in memory. Because, and uh, we've been putting our heads together over at the Facebook group to try to figure out exactly when the Marauders did any, you know, mission statement marauding, and uh, we couldn't come up with a whole lot of examples here. Anyway, the thing is, they need to put together a new team, which is kind of the mission statement of this $5 book we're looking at. Now, Kitty's first stop is Quanon's place, where... All right, gang, I swear I'm not trying to, like, push this, you know, Orlando writes unnaturally sounding dialogue narrative. I don't want to make this into, like, a thing because that's lazy and uh, low effort. But uh, this conversation is awkward. It's basically just Psylocke uh, synopsizing and expositing in word balloon form. Kitty, she she's like, why have you been hiding out and acting like an outcast? Which... I mean, say that out loud like I just did. Has any human ever delivered a line like this? Why have you been hiding out and acting like an outcast? Ugh, okay. Um, now, Psylocke replies with, I did terrible things to get my daughters back and lost her anyway. What else would you call me? Uh, awkwardly worded, to be sure, and also totally without context. Um, you know, Quanon is a very reserved and private character. That much has been established. And... She opens up with an emotional bloodletting like this Which, I mean, it's emotional in import Robotic in delivery It just, it's very, very awkward Even with that said, I do think it's important to get this information out Which begs the question Where the hell's the editorial footnote? And we're going to be saying that a lot Throughout this issue in this episode Because there's, I mean, you're, you're kind of without a net reading this um, This has a number one on the cover it has a new creative team. It's something that you would see as potentially being new reader friendly, or it should be new reader friendly. And the fact that it isn't is not the fault of the creative team. It's This is an editor thing. This is where we should have notes saying where you can go to find out exactly what in the hell Quanon is talking about here. Maybe direct a potentially new reader to Hellions and Fallen Angels? I mean, that might give them half a friggin' clue of what Psylocke's actually talking about here. Honestly, you should not have to wiki this stuff to follow it. Especially when there's a number one on the cover, and you pay $5 for the privilege. Anyway, Kitty offers her a spot on the New Look Marauders. 
From here, we shift over to the Green Lagoon, where Bishop demands a yes or no answer from Tempo as to whether or not she'll join the Marauders. Now, when last she was asked, it was that Ireland issue, which, of course, does not get a footnote. She said, eh, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe I will, maybe I won't. Uh, Bishop says he ain't got no time nor patience for maybes. Now, it's worth noting that uh, Tempo is chatting up a woman named Bouncer, or at least called Bouncer here, who is a deep cut indeed. Now, she's only ever appeared once before in, of all things, Muties Number 4, May 2002 cover date. Now, um, Muties was a pretty awful miniseries that focused on a different young mutant character in each issue, um, kind of... Kind of like a slice of life sort of thing. Wasn't so much superheroics. It was just mutants living their regular non-superheroic life, uh, mundane stuff. You know, in my opinion, it wasn't all that great, and uh, it certainly wasn't necessary. But hey, here we are. We're getting, <laughs> we're getting Bouncer back. Um, from here, we jump back to Kate and Quanan. They're at the Boneyard, uh, assumedly trying to draft Dakin, Dakin onto the team. Only, well, you know, he he ain't there. In fact, he hasn't been seen in days. Now, Psylocke does her thought line hoodoo, whatever the hell that is, and deduces that he's, uh, he's missing. He's not there, so I guess that's a good use of mutant power. Uh, Kitty says that finding Dakin, Dakin, will be the new Marauder's first mission. Then Kitty also says that Dakin, Dakin, is so stubborn that he probably won't take a rescue from just anybody. And I, I don't know about that. I mean, the way he was calling out names a few pages back, including... Psylox, who's standing, like, right next to you, I think he'd take a rescue from anybody who's willing to come. From here, we shift scenes to Calgary, Alberta, where Aurora, without the roll eyes, is dealing with some anti-mutant guys in order to rescue a young mutant called Stitch. Now, I'm pretty sure in this one page, Aurora's already done more mutant rescuing than the Marauders have done in their entire existence. Uh, Stitch, by the way, is another deep cut into mutant history, which... Hey, you know, that's one thing I will give Orlando. He's digging deep into the lore here. I always appreciate that. Uh, she, Stitch, uh, Jody Furman is her real name, she first appeared in Alpha Flight Special, Volume 2, Number 1, way back in April 1992, and uh, has only appeared like once or twice since, and not even in present day. Now, she was a member of Department H's Superhero Task Force before Alpha Flight was officially launched. Anyway, Aurora here, she's met by Bishop and Tempo, who are asking if she's got any info on Dakin, Dakin. You know, since they were an item over an X-Factor. Now, she says she's not sure, but also, if they're going to be around grilling Dakin, Dakin's lovers, well, they probably should check in with this one dude. But first, an info page. And it's actually a very good use of the info page gimmick. It's um, a report filed by Dakin, Dakin, before he headed to Connecticut. As mentioned, he got the intel from a Morlock. We find out here it was a Morlock called Carver. And oh boy, okay. Now Carver, another very obscure character, who first appeared in Wolverine Volume 2, number 157, December 2000 cover date. And um, Carver was created by Rob Liefeld and, and came from a very, very odd era in Wolverine comics. Now Carver was not content to remain in Rio Verde, Arizona, like many of the other Morlocks. We've seen them, you know, golfing and whatnot. So he would move to Madripoor, which... I guess he also really didn't dig. Now, Dakin, Dakin, ran into him while he was visiting Marrow for their weekly shot. And uh, I'm guessing they throw back a drink once a week in Madripoor because... I, why not? Why not? So, Carver told Dakin, Dakin, about this mass grave where the Morlocks buried their dead after an attack by Mr. Clean. Oi, okay, Mr. Clean. Um, now, Mr. Clean was part of the Poptopia story arc that kicked off Joe Casey's time on Uncanny X-Men. 
He first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 395, August 2001 cover date. And if you were around at that time, you might recall that this was an arc that kind of underdelivered on Casey's promises that we'd be seeing something we'd never seen before, because the story was really just a weak-ass attempt to do another mutant massacre. Only nobody cared. Anyway, the last time Clean was ever mentioned was on an info page in House of X number 4, October 2019 cover date. There, he was listed as the eighth most deadly threat to mutants, and it's said that uh, he was responsible for the deaths of 126 of them. Now, if Carver and Mr. Clean aren't obscure enough for you here, we get a couple more nods in this info page. Uh, now, Dakin Dakin mentions having to cut himself out of traps before, and he cites two locations. One is Port Brimstone, which is a city hidden under Manhattan uh, that first appeared in Spirits of Vengeance number 3, December 2017 cover date. Also, a place called Monster Metropolis, which is yet another city that's hidden under Manhattan. This one first appeared in Punisher Volume 8, Number 12, December 2009, cover date. And this ties into Dakin Dakin killing the Punisher, which would segue into that very, very odd Frankencastle era. I tell you, I'm really liking these deep cuts. (laughs) But anyway, back to comics. We join Bobby and Christian Frost as they uh, dance in their dreams. Didn't the last issue of the first volume make like a... Big deal out of Bobby and Christian, you know, leaving, going away, not being around anymore. Anyway, they're basically having their high school prom here, courtesy of the powers of Somnus. And they're actually all sitting in a Krakoan jacuzzi. And the art, while uneven and maybe even a little bit dodgy, um, it gets quite odd here. It looks as though uh, Christian Frost has, like, cricket limbs or something. Like, his arms must be six feet long. It's very, very bizarre. Also, if we were to go back to the dance scene here, um, we got Bobby and Christian dancing, right? And the floor is made up of, like, Winston Frost's face, and he's uh, lambasting his son for not being a true Frost or something. I thought this was, like, supposed to be a fantasy, which um, maybe Christian has uh, daddy issues. Maybe being scolded is a kink. I mean, I'm not here to judge. Whatever, Whatever floats your pirate ship, right? Anyway, Somnus, he's uh, approached by Kate and Psylocke uh, for help in tracking down Dakin. Dakin. Uh, Kitty drops us a bit of awkward exposition to remind Somnus that he lived a lifetime with Dakin Dakin in one night. Which, again, say that out loud. Hey, Somnus, you lived a lifetime with Dakin Dakin in one night. Uh, Now, also since Somnus did live that lifetime in one night, should he really need to be reminded? Probably not, but you know who does need to be reminded? Probably. Those folks who decided not to spend $10 on Marvel's Voices Pride that actually told the story where they spent this lifetime together in one night. So, hey editors, maybe a footnote? Anyway, I- I'm really not sure why they're making this scene seem as though they're trying to convince Somnus to, so- to join up. Like, they're twisting his arm because he doesn't seem hesitant in the slightest. He's like, oh, Dak and Dakin needs help? Sign me up. I'm there. When do we go? It's, uh, I don't know, it feels very disconnected. Uh, anyway, from here, we scene shift to South Salem, New York, where Dakin Dakin is strapped to a large wooden axe. Now, he's not crucified on it like Wolverine over in Uncanny 251. He's more, like, bent over it, like he's in some old-school stocks. Now, it's here where our baddie makes his debut, and, uh, well, shock of shocks, it's the dude from the cover, Brimstone Love. Now, this is his first mainstream Marvel appearance. Uh, Before this, he was uh, one of the big bads from X-Men 2099. Now, that Brimstone Love's first appearance was X-Men 2099 number 3, October 1993 cover date. 
Now, if the Marvel Wiki is to be believed, this Brimstone Love is a completely new character. Though he has the exact same gimmick. Uh, he puts on a theater of pain, a show for the entertainment of the wealthy. He's kind of a Svengali of sorts. He manipulates the upper-class folks of uh, this neighborhood in, in South Salem. Uh, they chant his name, and they seem to be really, really enjoying the show. And we'll talk more about the context and, and perhaps some of the underlying uh, themes of this bit here as we work our way through. Uh, now, initially, Brimstone Love calls out Krakoa as being separatist, which, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. It kind of is, right? We'll be touching on that as we as we work our way through. But first, let's head back to Connecticut, where the new marauders are following Dakin Dakin's trail. Now, they're at that mass grave from the open, which has since been refilled. Now, a really, really cool touch here. Bishop is reading the info page we just looked at a few moments ago. You know, because that was a report written by Dakin Dakin, and I think that's really, really neat. Psylocke uses her psychic knife to start surveying the mass grave for impressions, which will get us to, uh, to our next location. But first, let's head back to South Salem. Uh, Carver climbs up on the stage, and uh, Dakin Dakin is pretty shocked and upset that, um, well, he was betrayed or, or tricked or trapped by a fellow mutant. Now, here's where uh, business really starts to pick up here. The story gets uh, a bit more interesting. We've got a human on the stage, and a very, very unhappy human who claims that he's believed in and fought for mutant rights for his entire life. And now, the mutants have abandoned them, so, like, where's my thank you? You know, for being an ally, for being on your side. I can't tell if this is actually trying to evoke virtue signaling, like privileged people claiming to be totally down with a marginalized group only to feel slighted when said marginalized group decides they don't need to be anyone else's, you know, pet cause. And if that is the feeling we're trying to evoke here, I think there's a, I think there's a, a heck of a story idea there. Uh, though, again, I could just be reading too far into a potentially throwaway line of awkward dialogue, so who knows. So yeah, we got Carver on stage. He's awkwardly monologuing. Uh, Brimstone Love then starts his monologue, and it's actually quite interesting. Now, he says he's here to offer people validation, which, again, might be feeding into the virtue signaling angle here. He's here to make all these forgotten allies to the mutant's plight feel like they have meaning. Dakin Dakin says that he can smell everyone in the crowd's stress hormones, and he knows, he knows that they're all scared. He knows it's all fear. And he knows that Brimstone Love isn't really talking to them, as much as he is conditioning them. And I tell you what, you know, awkward dialogue aside, I like this as a story idea. From here, Brimstone Love takes one of Carver's torn-off claws and slashes Dakin Dakin's throat with it. Doesn't kill him, but uh, makes for a heck of a bloodletting. Just then, the Marauders arrive. They leap out of the Mercury. Psylocke performs a mid-air psychic scan of the entire field. And she says that the privileged folk here are mutant allies and also some closeted mutants themselves who Brimstone Love convinced that Xavier betrayed them with this whole, you know, isolationist mutant nation thing. Once they land, uh, Call Me Kate and uh, Brimstone Love share an awkward bit of a repartee. Uh, Dakin Dakin Berserker rages out of the stocks and actually hacks off one of Love's horns. Aurora zaps Carver with some hoodoo, and uh, our sensational character find of 2021 Somnus stands there. Okay. Uh, Brimstone Love then gives us the line of the issue. He says... You think we can be silenced by something as instructive as pain? Hmm, instructive is... I, I know I don't English very good, but does that actually mean anything? Maybe I'm, I'm sure I'm an idiot. Maybe I'm just a bigger idiot than I thought. 
Anyway, Love punches the ground and creates a great big sinkhole that takes the entire neighborhood deep into the earth. As if we didn't already have enough underground civilizations, right? Anyway, the Marauders manage to rescue the now homeless upper crust of South Salem, and uh, Brimstone Love takes this opportunity to slink away. From here, we have an info page, and it's a Brimstone Love writing to a fellow Judas about the theater performance that we just saw, I think. Uh, he name-drops Zaha Geri, whose name only ever appeared once on an info page back in House of X number 1. There, we found out that Zaha Geri is an Orcus engineer, so uh, the Orcus storyline is still plugging away. We jump back to Hellfire Bay, where our titular heroes are given their new marauding vessel. Now, it's got uh, the X-Skull from the Marauder's logo on its front, and it is the Mercury, which, since Christian Frost ain't using it anymore, is, is fine for our crew. It's worth noting they toast the new team, and uh, Quanon, of all people, is smiling like a damn chucklehead. So, I'm guessing that Creasley has never read anything with Quanon in it, because that is not, uh, <laughs> you don't picture her with a big, stupid smile. From here, we shift scenes to our former Hellfire bigwigs. We learn that uh, Christian Frost will take over as Red Monarch so that Kitty can focus on marauding and quiet counseling. I, I thought Christian was leaving. Wasn't that like... Didn't that get like a couple of pages in Marauders 27? And speaking of which, I mean, I can't tell if this scene is happening before or after Marauders number 27 because Emma and Sebastian really shouldn't even be part of this conversation. Call Me Kate should be chatting up Lordish Chantal and the Stepford Cuckoos. Oh, well, I mean, what is linear storytelling anyway, right? Anyway, Emma hands Kitty a Mysterium puzzle box, which I think was given to her by Mystique to sway Emma's vote in adding Destiny to the Quiet Council during Inferno. Not that there'd be a footnote to confirm that. Now, in case you haven't read any Sword, and again, it's not like the editors are going to bother with a footnote. I'm starting to doubt any of them actually even read this issue. Mysterium is a weird cosmic metal that was discovered in that book and might be used as a currency and new gold standard for the galaxy. Anyway, this puzzle box is notable for its Krakoan writing. It's addressed to Kitty Pride. Now, once opened, Kitty finds a map of Krakoa with a note which reads, The First Blood Spilled, which is written in her own handwriting. And that's where we leave it. Next time out, we will be uh, finally killing Cyclops again over in X-Men number 7. I, I think I promised that episode a couple episodes ago, and... Uh, Turned out to be just uh, me podcasting with my eyes closed, and I didn't realize what I was talking about. But uh, that will be next episode. But for now, let's talk about this somewhat surprising outing for the Marauders. Um, you know, I was prepared to go into this. <laughs> I was prepared to be very, very negative. Um, I didn't want to be, but I was prepared to be. Now let me get it out of the way so I don't have to dwell on it any more than I already have. Uh, the dialogue here was not great. I feel like uh, Brian Bendis should take Steve Orlando out to the mall so they can people listen, like uh, like Bendis was uh, known to do back in the day, because the dialogue here does not sound human. It, it, I mean, it's one of those things where you can read it and you get the point, but if you actually try to picture someone saying these lines and delivering these lines, it's just so unnatural. And I mean, that that's not a Orlando-centric thing here. That's something that a lot of writers struggle with, you know, finding a way to make the dialogue seem seem natural, seem like something you would hear in passing. It's something I'm sure I couldn't do, so I, I kind of feel weird pointing it out here. It's just that um, in Orlando's writing, it's a little bit more obvious. And I mean, I really can't even blame him because uh, well, that's just the state of comics in 2022 and, and comics uh, analysis. 
when someone's getting 10 out of 10 review scores, they don't really see a need to improve anything or try any harder. It's funny how um, it's very fashionable to point out uh, things like, say, Rob Liefeld not improving after hitting it big back in the early 90s. You know, I remember hearing or seeing or reading quotes, I should say, from uh, other professionals who said, you know, Rob Liefeld has all the tools, but he never matured as an artist. And it's because he didn't have to. Because when you strike gold, you know, why, why change the formula? Fast forward to nowadays where we have a whole lot of creators who have a whole lot of potential, but have a few weaknesses. But every time they put something out, they get bombarded with 10 out of 10 review scores. So why improve? Why bother putting any effort into it? Because as far as you can tell, the audience doesn't think you could possibly be any better than you currently are. Now that said and out of the way, I think there's a lot of potential here. I really enjoyed, and again, I could be reading into things, but I enjoyed some of the themes that it looked like Orlando was getting ready to explore here. Now, the story of these uh, these privileged human allies to the mutant cause, um, it evokes a concept that was, a, well, was a, a, a term that was coined back in the 70s, which is perhaps even more relevant today. And that concept is a radical chic. Now, this is the fashionable practice of upper-class people associating with politically radical people and causes. Now, this was a term coined uh, by Tom Wolfe in a 1970 essay called Radical Chic, That Party at Lenny's. Now, this is a term that in the age of social media seems more relevant than ever before. Now, it might not be a popular thing to say, but um, with everyone having a voice nowadays, it's become very, very easy to make it seem like you're for something without actually, you know, putting any effort into it. Now, the quick and dirty from the wiki, we have, quote, Unlike dedicated activists, revolutionaries, or dissenters, those who engage in radical chic remain frivolous political agitators, ideologically invested in their cause of choice only so far as it advances their social standing. Dictionary.com defines radical chic as a fashionable practice among socially prominent people of associating with radicals or members of minority groups. Now, I mean, you can think about that in terms of folks who will, like, change their social media avatar to say that they're for a certain cause, but don't actually, you know, do anything besides projecting. That, or maybe they'll add the word resists to the end of their tag. Uh, This is also known as performative activism and optical allyship. Another more basic term would just be slacktivism. And if that's what Orlando is trying to evoke with brimstone love in the, you know, upper crusters of New York... I think that's some very interesting themes that can be explored here. Uh, Love is like, I'm here for validation. I'm here to validate your allyship and also to shine a light on the betrayal that your chosen cause, your pet cause, has isolated themselves from you. They've decided they no longer need you. It's all about control and conditioning via validation. And unless I'm mistaken, I don't know that that's something we've seen before. Up until this point, uh, the mutant supporters we've seen have been more of the fanatical kind. We've seen like the the what are the cult of X or whatever they were, the ones that hang out and like kind of pray around the Krakoan gateways. We've seen those people. We've seen regular folks, but we haven't seen this odd allying for acknowledgement sort of niche here. So if we're going to be exploring this, and um, we have Brimstone Love writing into Orcus, so we might assume we'll see him again sometime soon. Maybe maybe we'll never see him again, but uh, hopefully we do, because I, I kind of like him as this manipulator and agitator. I think there is a spot for him in the, you know, present-day X-Men rogues gallery. So yeah, story is pretty solid, dialogue's all over the place, editorial is completely out to lunch. 
Because even though, you know, editorial footnotes are way, way too comic booky and nerdy, you kind of need them in a book like this, where we're taking uh, characters and concepts from all these different books and putting them on one team, but we're keeping all the backstory and we're only, like, nebulously mentioning what that backstory is. Footnotes. They've worked for 80 years. They'll still work today. Finally, uh, the art is a little uneven. But not bad by any stretch. Um, I think, all told, uh, Marauder's Annual Number 1 is is worth a read. Again, not sure if my own, you know, headcanon and head projection <laughs> is uh, affecting the way in which I received this story, but um, I do feel like we have some interesting concepts, and I'm looking forward to seeing what's to come. Anyway, that's all I got to say about the issue. Let's, uh, let's take this one home with our usual Monday segment, This Week in X, where we take a look at what's showing up on Unlimited and on the shelves. And uh, not a huge week in either uh, venue. On Unlimited, we have uh, Wolverine number 18, X-Men number 5, and the X-Force Killshot special number 1, which I still have yet to read. <laughs> Has anybody read that? If so, um, am I missing anything? Do we need it for the show? Uh, let me know. Let me know, please. Um, Now, on shelves this Wednesday, we have two books. Just two books, but seven covers between them for some reason. Uh, We've got Devil's Reign X-Men number two, and that one has two covers. Only two covers, yay. Uh, We have X-Men number nine with five covers. Why 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 is there five covers for X-Men number nine? I mean, I'm looking at these covers now, and it's like, oh boy, I really, really need that Ron Lim Carnage Forever variant of X-Men number nine. You kidding me? Can't we stop? Am I speaking out of turn? I mean, is there anybody out there that really, really wants this Ron Lim Carnage Forever variant? I mean, nothing against Ron Lim. I like his work a lot, but I don't need a Carnage Forever variant of X-Men number 9. Which, now that I put that out into the atmosphere, I'm guessing DCBS will send me that one. Anyway, in addition to those two books, we have two trades. We have Excalibur by Teeny Howard, Volume 4, and X-Men by Jerry Duggan, Volume 1. So pretty tame week overall. If you're if you're only buying the single issues, you know, just two books. Not a not a break bank. A, no bank breaker. <laughs> it won't break the bank, is what I'm trying to say. And I'm uh, apparently quite loopy. So how about we uh, we take this one home? <laughs> if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, I would love for you to do so. Contact information is in the show notes as always. And I I hope someone decides to take advantage of that. <laughs> and um, I want to thank you all so much for joining me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.